In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Today we direct our attention towards the book of Isaiah again. Isaiah appears a lot, especially in Advent season. In part, um, we mentioned this before, but in part with how vivid of a book and prophecy it is of Jesus's coming into the world with all of its pictures of uh, the suffering servant and the promised root of Jesse. Here we're, we're given images of, of Jesus coming into the world, which fits well with the Advent season. Um, today our text comes from Isaiah chapter 61. To give a little bit of a, a background uh, and a recap on the book itself, Isaiah is prophesying um, specifically to, to Judah at the time. Um, Israel uh, crumbles at, underneath the Assyrian Empire in roughly 722 BC. And Judah lasts a little bit longer, up until 587. Um, uh, here Isaiah is proclaiming and prophesying about the, the upcoming destruction and the restoration to Judah. We have Isaiah, the book, kind of broken up into three main segments. The first segment is that of chapters 1 to 39. Um, then we have a section from 40 to 55. And then the last section, 56, roughly to 66. And it was last week that we heard from Isaiah 40, from that middle section, the comfort, comfort section. So here we, we advance to that third section of Isaiah that you, you just mentioned. We do, and right, uh, the first two sections really build on this theme of righteousness. Righteousness is a huge theme throughout the book of Isaiah. And in it, um, the, the idea and the concept of righteousness progresses. So we have righteousness being, uh, going from this, this idea of um, the people being called to be righteous, and they fail to be righteous, that being in the first segment. So the people are being called righteous, they fail at being righteous. The second segment, that of uh, 40 to 55, it primarily focuses on God's righteousness and how God is righteousness, bringing about salvation. And then there's this question of, well, what do you do with... Um, you know, the people are not righteous, God alone is righteous. Well, that resolution comes in the, this final half. And we really see the climax of it in this chapter, chapter 61, where the two come together. And we'll get to that once we jump more into the text. But yes, there's like this continual progression throughout the book of Isaiah, specifically in, in 60 and 61. So leading up to this chapter in um, 61, uh, chapter 60 focuses on uh, Israel's future glory um, and the promise of salvation. We also have that promise like following chapter 61. So there's this, this promise of future glory. Again, another glimpse of this future glory. In between is where our text lies. 
And our text focuses on how that glory is to come. And Isaiah wrote, he wrote all of this in, in advance of the captivity, correct? Yes, so it depends on what captivity you're talking about. Okay. So the, the captivity for, for Judah, mm -hmm. which is the primary, uh, the primary focus of his audience, that did come much later. So Isaiah is speaking, his, he's commissioned around 740. Well, the, he lives through the, the exile of Israel. And he talks about the exile of Israel a little bit in his book, but he also talks about and foretells the coming judgment to Judah, which would happen years down the road. Okay. So okay. 100, 200 years down the road. And then also the promise of restoration, looking at Cyrus, who is called by name. So like all of these promises, which would happen in the future, he's also talking about. So yes. It's amazing that he... he prophesies or, or foretells all the phases, not just the fall, but the restoration. It is. Yeah, and it's um, Isaiah himself, um, his, his name uh, literally means, if I remember right, the Lord is deliverance. And that's a, a theme that is woven throughout his book. The Lord delivers. And so there's this, you know, there's this judgment that he talks about a lot, but it also always comes back to, to the promise of deliverance that God has for his people. Which is one of the reasons it ties in with our gospel reading for this Sunday as well, but we'll come back to that later, I, I think, to, to tie does. that together. It does, yes. And we've mentioned how, how beautiful the, the liturgy is and the, um, the lectionary is, too, with with how well interwoven the New Testament and the Old Testament are, and certainly is the case for today. Would you mind reading our uh, text for today, Isaiah chapter 61? It's a, it's a long section. Do you want it all in one, in one reading? Let's start with verses 1 to 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. For I, the Lord, I think it ends right there. That, that, that it does yes. end there for verse 4, yeah. yep. And uh, here, we're right off the bat, we're given the Lord's name, a twofold divine name of the Lord, the Lord God. And so in both of these, um, each part of, of God's name, Lord and God, um, indicates something different. On the one hand, you have God being the, the master, the ruler of all the universe. So the emphasis on God's name, especially in the Hebrew, is emphasis over ruler over all the universe. Then we have more of a, a person, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, a personal name, the Lord, 
which is revealed to Abraham and Moses. So Moses in the burning bush, um, he, God reveals his name as the great I am. And that name is, is carried with him, and um, it's very closely attached to the covenant promise. So here we have God as both the ruler of the entire universe, as well as um, someone who fulfills his covenant promise specifically to Israel. And that's the image that we get throughout all of the text. A God who is master over all the universe, working through people, through nations, and specifically bringing about this promise for deliverance for Israel. And they would have been very aware of the history with Moses and understood that it's a double name. They would have, yeah. yes, yes. And, and throughout the Old Testament, they were very aware of the use of, of the Lord's name. And the, the Masorites, where we get the, uh, the Hebrew text for today, um, during Jesus's day, they would take the text and they would be very careful not to speak God's name, specifically um, what's translated as the Lord, which is the I am. Um, they would be very careful not to speak that name. And so whenever they'd translate, they'd translate it, they would translate it as the Lord, Adonai, um, okay. instead of God's personal name, out of reverence. So they were very aware of the two names and how they were used, and they were very respectful and reverent towards them. Uh, here, when, when it kind of sets the tone uh, with the Lord God, we're then told about both the spirits, the spirits and the anointing of this particular prophet or person who is going to bring about all this deliverance. And what I find interesting about this is that uh, spirit and anointed is something used only elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to kings. So we see this both with King Saul and King David, where when they're anointed, they're filled with the Spirit. And so when we're told in Isaiah that this prophet is to be filled with the Spirit and is anointed for a particular task, and in our minds, we can't help but jump to someone who is in the line of David as king. We get that a little bit more when we see this proclamation. So he's to proclaim liberty to the captives, it's almost as if it's a, a king announcing an amnesty, telling them that you are free. And so we have this kind of like this idea of a kingship role of this prophet. When you mentioned earlier about the double name Lord and God, so there's God, but Lord, Lord also helps tie it into the idea of um, one earthly hierarchy, because we use that we use that term in that in that way that that you're the Lord of the manor or, you know, the, the, you know, the, the Lord of, of whatever. You're, you're the boss. Yes. Um, yep. And so they could relate to both of those roles, the, the, the functional, the, the creator, the sustainer, and also the, the sovereign. Mm -hmm. and, and in the Greek, that's where we get um, master. So Lord is literally, literally translated as master. And so um, in the New Testament, which uses the Greek language, we'll hear multiple references to Lord, but maybe not always to Jesus. And so, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile Lord being referred to a person? Well, uh, other than Jesus, well, it's, it's a description of someone being a master, a Lord of the land, just as you described it. 
Right, and they and they and they apply to both. They apply to God and to Jesus. They're used. They're used both ways. They are. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I find it unique that what this particular prophet is anointed to do. That is, um, it, there's a lot of things that he's he's sent to do. That is, he's sent to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the year of the Lord to grant those who mourn in Zion. But what he's anointed to do is chiefly to bring good news to the poor. So this anointing is meant specifically to bring this good news. And throughout the book of Isaiah and elsewhere throughout scripture, the word has a, has a strong performative, active role. So when words are being spoken, not only are they just being spoken, but things are being done. We see this in like Genesis and creation story. God speaks and it's created. So also in here, this, this prophet is to speak, but it isn't just a, a, a typical prophet. He isn't one who's just prophesying like Isaiah, but he's prophesying and what he prophesies is to be fulfilled. So when he says that he's to, pro, to bring good news to the poor, it isn't just proclaiming good news, but it's doing the good news, bringing about the good news to the poor. He's, he's literally imparting what he is announcing. Well, I was going to bring this up later, but there's, there's the use of the, the pronoun me at the very beginning there. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So Isaiah is, there's, there's kind of a double layer of meaning there, is, is there not? He's talking about himself, that he's the proclaimer, but it's also kind of a foreshadowing of, of, of Christ himself, right? That Christ is the one who has the spirit upon him, who will be the, the rescuer and, and the bringer of good news to the people. That's right. And it, this is actually quoted by Jesus in Luke 4, when he is uh, ministering in Nazareth. Uh, this is the start of his ministry and he reads this text from Isaiah, and he says that this text has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it's part of that where um, we see that you know, Isaiah is um, speaking these words, and it's certainly true for him, but the fulfillment of it is found in Jesus. Yeah, that the me, the me is Jesus instead of Isaiah. And, and we yeah. see that throughout like yeah. the suffering servant too, right? Yeah. That, that, that so many references to the suffering servant um, as well. Yep. Yeah, that's a good clarifying point because if you just read it from the historical context, it looks like Isaiah is just talking about himself. Right, and that, that he almost invests himself with a little too much authority and knowledge, but really it's, it's because he's trying to unravel this prophecy for us. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's interesting, when Jesus actually does um, quote this, in, in verse 2, there's this, there's this um, twofold reference to what type of day it is, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So there's like these two sides of the same sword. You have um, the Lord's favor and then also the day of uh, vengeance. So something that's good that is going to happen to the people, and then also punishment. Now, the two are the same in the sense that um, for the redeemed, it will be a day of rejoicing and redemption, 
Uh, but for those who reject what God is giving them, turn away from God, it will be a day of vengeance. Interestingly, Jesus does not mention the day of vengeance when he quotes it in Luke. So how do we, how do we take right. this? How do, do you, we understand what do you, what do you, this? What do you, yeah, what do you do with that? Right. Well, on the one hand, like, he, he's, not, he's not doing anything wrong by not including that. Um, certainly he is God and he is quoting it. And we also see that the, the two are the same. Um, so the day of vengeance is the day of uh, redemption or the, Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. The two are the same. So when he just quotes one of them, he is quoting both. But also, I think we get a, uh, a clear glimpse of this in what he actively is doing um, in his ministry. That is to say, when he, is, when he, comes, um, when he comes to minister in Nazareth and eventually all the way up to Jerusalem where he dies on the cross, he is chiefly bringing righteousness, forgiveness, life. So that he's not bringing vengeance quite yet. It's when he returns that that vengeance is then met out towards others. So I think it's, it's, it's very appropriate that he would only include the year of the Lord's favor because that was what he came to do, was to bring the Lord's favor to all people and to open it up, wanting all to receive it. Maybe at the second coming, we'll hear him read Isaiah again and he'll, he'll include He'll include that, yeah. <laughs> The text continues on, and there's a, a number of reversals that we see throughout the text. There's this mourning that is being given up, and then we have this image of like this festivity with this headdress and this oil of gladness being poured out, garments of praise. So we have this reversal, and we have also a reversal from earlier on in Isaiah. Isaiah's chapter 1 and chapter 3 both have beautiful pictures of um, this headdress, which it references um, being taken away because of sin. And then also this picture of these oaks. Um, Isaiah says that the, the people of Judah are these oaks that are withering. And so um, here we're told that, uh, and the withering being because of their own sin. So again, the sin is what causes both the headdress to be taken away and these oaks to be withering. Here in chapter 61, we're told of the opposite, where the headdresses are being given back to them, and they will be called oaks of righteousness. And you, when you think of an oak, you think of this big, sturdy, constant... Um, well, it's a, it's a fairly standard symbol of, of uh, yeah, sturdiness, uh, immovability, just it's that's a rock. Right. Exactly, yeah. It's a very good way of putting it. And one would have to know the entire book of Isaiah pretty well to catch all these subtleties. I mean, these, these poetic contrasts and opposites are all through there, but, but you would really have to, have to know the, the entire text very well to catch them all. You do, yeah. And it, it really builds towards that, that theme of righteousness that, that I mentioned earlier, where the first first part of Isaiah was focused on uh, the righteousness that Israel and Judah were called to be and that they failed to be. And then the righteousness that we looked at um, last week with uh, 40 to 55, um, that righteousness that God him, himself, God alone is righteous. 
And then we have this contrast. You know, the people are called to be righteous. They fail. God alone is righteous. So what is going to happen? And we get that kind of resolution in the latter half of this reading. Would you mind reading verses 8 to 11? For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make them make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. I think Martin Luther does a really good job at highlighting um, how these two ideas of righteousness are resolved when he talks about both active righteousness and passive righteousness. Um, that is to say, our active righteousness never will succeed. So Israel, Judah, when we look at um, their active right, righteousness, who they are called to be, they, they are not able to um, actively be righteous in order to um, save themselves or meet that standard that God has of them. But yet this is where passive righteous, righteousness comes into play. That is to say, um, here we're, we're told of, um, in verse 10 and verse 11, that they will be clothed, and, and, and here 10, it actually changes subject to, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. So there's this question of who is the I? Um, specifically, most, most scholars believe that it's referring to Israel and Zion. So the new Zion, the redeemed people are speaking. And they say, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And so this, this garment, this robe that we're actively, that Zion is actively being wrapped around, it's covering that, that sin, that, that image of sin that we have of, of Adam and Eve at the fall when, they're, when they sin, they recognize that they're, they're um, naked and full of shame and sin, and they seek a covering. Well, here God is, is wrapping them up, covering up that sin, that shame in this, this garment, this robe that is salvation and righteousness, and it's a very passive thing. So while Israel was not able to actively be the righteous people that they were asked to be, as we saw in the first section, God, who is righteous and who acts righteously, as we saw in the second se section, makes us righteous by giving us that righteous robe, which is a very passive righteousness, which we, which we see in this last section, chiefly in this chapter of Isaiah. So it's like a culmination of righteousness and how we ourselves as God's redeemed people are made righteous by him. Now, now this is a concept that we typically don't, don't teach the catechism kids, at, at least 
at least not that I'm aware of, this, this terms of, of passive and active righteousness. It's not, it's not an extremely difficult concept to grasp because it's, 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 it's got its parallels with you know, for the free grace of God. And normally we think of Luther grounding his arguments about being justified by grace alone in the New Testament out of Romans and things like that. But he actually uses uh, passages like this from Isaiah to support that same idea. He does, yes, yes. Um, yeah, it would be a wonderful thing that we should reintroduce to catechism students. I think it would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing that I'll be teaching catechism this, uh, this coming spring, maybe that's something that I can weave in there, right? <laughs> because, yeah, because I, I think they could easily grasp that. Yes, yep. And, and we think about Jesus, too, who is both actively and passively righteous. Um, actively righteous in the works that he did, so in his life and ministry, he was actively doing what was right. He alone is perfect. So we have this contrast between the servant of Israel who failed with Jesus, who is the servant who could actively be righteous. And then we have Jesus's also passive righteousness in which he suffered and died on the cross. So like he was passively righteous and he, that passive righteousness he gives to each of us. So that, that righteousness becomes our own. Um, and it's just as we, we talked about the word, the being very performative, it accomplishes what it is sent out to do. So also when, when we, God's people, now are enabled, we're, we're empowered with the Holy Spirit to, to begin that life of, of righteous living. Now, again, we'll never be able to live righteously to the, to the extent that, that God calls us to, to live righteously so that we save ourselves. We would never say that. God himself is the one who saves. But that life is something that continues to work through us so that we, we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to do good works and to want to love and to care for our neighbors. Uh, verse 11, I think, sums it up really well um, when it says that the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The cause isn't ourselves, mm -hmm. but the cause is God. And we have this assurance that um, just as we know that, you know, that um, the earth will bring about all of these, this vegetation. You know, we, we, we know from experience that, that nature brings about this vegetation. Really, it's God that's at work through it. But just as we are, can be certain that, that the earth will sprout vegetation, we ourselves can be even more confident that God will cause this righteousness to sprout up in his people. And, and this helps to explain why Isaiah could predict all of this, because he had his confidence in these things, that, that this is what God would do. Because you don't know what, what men, what people are going to do, because people are fickle. But if, but if you understand it from a God perspective, you know how it's going to end. Very well put. Yes. Yeah. The, our confidence can't be on ourselves. It has to be on God. We mentioned earlier how the uh, Old Testament and Isaiah weaves together the, um, the gospel and the epistle reading for today. And maybe we could touch on that just a little bit. Our epistle reading comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and our gospel comes from John chapter 1, probably a very, very familiar passage to, 
to most of us. For uh, 1 Thessalonians, um, it weaves together this theme of, of God's word, the spirit, and prophecy very, very well. So here, Paul is speaking to, to the church, and he tells and commands them, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Um, the spirit in prophecies is very closely interwoven, and not only is it culminated in Jesus, but it also carries through in the church. So we see a little bit of the element of that in, in the epistle, but then also in John, which John chapter 1, it's Jesus coming, um, certainly in the, the form of from the, being the word, taking on human flesh, but also this, this prophecy of uh, John the Baptist. So John the Baptist pointing to Jesus who is to come, just as Isaiah was very clearly pointing to Jesus. John the Baptist takes the same form of pointing to Jesus, and he's asked um, whether or not he, he is uh, the Christ, whether or not he is the Elijah or the prophet, and each of these he says no, and he continues to point to Jesus. I know there's a lot more that could be gleaned from this text. Um, was there anything that stood out to you in the, the gospel or the epistle? Only that it, it comes back to that, that idea that I mentioned before that with the, with the use of, at the very beginning of our Old Testament passage, um, me, the pronoun me, that Isaiah, there was multiple layers that are happening right here. And um, just as Isaiah was a, a vehicle that God used, so was John to, to predict the, the coming of the Messiah. Yeah, that's excellent because um, Isaiah 40, last week when, when we had the comfort, comffort, um, Isaiah, uh, uh, I guess John the Baptist, is even quoting from Isaiah um, saying that he was the one crying out in the wilderness. That mm -hmm. comes from Isaiah chapter 40. Mm -hmm. And then we have here Jesus, who is fulfilling the words in, in Luke 4, um, fulfilling the words of Isaiah chapter 61. So there is all of this fulfillment from the words of Isaiah. You know, who is the me? Who is the one who's proclaiming? We have here interwoven in here, John the Baptist and Jesus and their ministry. There's a lot of pointing and foretelling in the book of Isaiah. And it, uh, I think it segues nicely into the hymn that we're going to look at for today. Last week, uh, it worked out very well that we looked at the hymn Comfort, Comfort, because that hymn is entirely based on the Isaiah passage that we had from Isaiah 40. And the hymn that we're going to look at for today also comes from Isaiah 40, um, but also from other places, and it's a little bit more little bit more wide-ranging in its expression of, of um, the message of John the Baptist. And this hymn is often appointed for that second Sunday of Advent. Um, Pastor and I were lamenting this last week that there's so many great Advent hymns that it's hard to fit them all in. And this year, because we have the unusual um, coincidence of Advent 4 lining up with Christmas Eve, we're gonna hear probably even fewer Advent hymns because we'll lean a little bit more towards Christmas hymns on that, on that fourth Sunday, unfortunately. It, it's, almost, 
it's almost as if you need a, a, an Advent hymn fest here <laughs> at Faith Lutheran. And we, in the in the distant past, we did one of those, and it was it was, it was uh, I think a very very successful event. But it's such a busy season of the year; it's 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 hard to fit things like that in. But yes, so many great great hymns for Advent. The hymn we're going to look at is if you have a Lutheran service book, is number 344 on Jordan's Bank, The Baptist Cry. And the, the interesting story behind this hymn is it was originally, this was a hymn from the 17th, excuse me, the 18th century. And typically the hymns that we have from that period were either written in English or were written in German and translated into English. This one was written in Latin and it was written for uh, a revision of a, of a French breviary. And it was because the author was just, he, he was very skilled in writing Latin poetry. And so he chose to write it in Latin. Well, the, the interesting part of the story is, is that after he had written it and published it and it was included in some collections of hymns, because it was written in Latin, people thought it was very old, it was much older, that it was from centuries and centuries ago because that's where most of our Latin hymns came from, was from the, the, the earlier days of the church. And so for a long time, it, it was thought to be much older until they realized that, that Charles Coffin had actually written it in the 18th century. Uh, he was also a, the rector at the University of Paris, so he was, a, he was an administrator uh, as well, but he's best known for his Latin poetry. And this relies, as I mentioned already, uh, very heavily on some of the same imagery from Isaiah 40, that um, uh, uh, on Jordan's bank, the Baptist cry announces that the Lord is nigh, awake and hearken, for he brings glad tidings of the King of Kings. It's, it's that awake, um, wake up, make straight the paths, that same message that we heard last week from that passage in Isaiah. And it pulls out some of that same imagery in stanza two. Then cleanse me every life from sin, make straight the way for God within. There's that make straight the paths again. But these first two stanzas talk, uh, they emphasize a lot more this idea of repentance, that John is repeat, uh, preaching a message of repentance. Be ready. You don't know when, when it's, it's going to happen. Um, awake and hearken. Uh, be cleansed uh, every life. In stanza three, we hear about our, our great reward that we're getting here because the covenant is being fulfilled. We hail thee as our Savior, Lord, our refuge and our great reward. That was that reward that was promised to Abraham in the, in the Old Testament that, that um, I will... I will rescue your people. Your, your people will be my chosen people. In stanza four, we hear about um, the healing. Lay on the sick thy healing hand. And in here I thought, uh, this actually ties quite well with what you said earlier about um, Jesus is bringing in, in, his, in his active ministry, he was healing people just to demonstrate his authority and, and, and his power. But then when he took away the sin of the world, it's that, it's that kind of passive righteousness that he's, he's giving everyone. And it's, it's every level that we talk about 
this, this healing hand that Christ comes to bring. It, it does a very beautiful job at connecting last week's service in their readings with this week's service in their readings, especially with the, the fulfillment of Jesus saying, like, you know, in, the, in these words, the reading of Isaiah 61, these have been fulfilled that to proclaim to the, the good news to the poor and certainly bring about all these healings included with it. Right, and that good news is, is yes, here's your reward. Um, um, stay strong in the Lord. <clears throat> Here, here's his healing that he's, he's come to bring. Um, and that message comes through in a lot of different uh, Christmas hymns. Um, Christmas hymns, not Advent hymns, but, <laughs> but um, it's, it's there nonetheless. And um, the, the um, melody for this is named Puer, Puer Nobis, which is, is Latin for, um, for us. It's, it's, it's done for us. And it originally was paired with a Latin Christmas hymn, and so that's where the title of it, of it comes from. And yeah, it should all tie together very neatly because it's also based very heavily on Isaiah 40. It concludes with a nice doxological verse that's specific to the Advent season, which is kind of a nice way to wrap it up. Not that unusual for a lot of hymns, but this one is definitely phrased to um, be suitable for singing in the season of Advent. So for today, um, I'm going to suggest that we sing um, stanzas one and three. On Jordan's bank the Baptist cry announces that the Lord is high. Awake and hearken, for he brings glad tidings of the King of Kings. We hail thee as our Savior, Lord, our refuge and our great reward. With thy grace we waste our way like flowers that wither and decay. And that reference to flowers withering and decaying, that's like the grass, um, the fleeting grass that was mentioned in, in last week's reading from Isaiah. So, so it's just, the imagery is there through and through. And it fits really well with the, uh, the imagery that we have this week of the oaks, the oaks that were withered, and now the oaks that are, are made strong, the oaks of righteousness, which God himself is the one plants. The only other hymn that we have in our hymnal by, by uh, Coffin, or maybe it's Coffin, if he, if he was French, it could have been Charles Coffin. I, I, I really don't know, but it looks, if, you, if, if us Eng English speakers, it just looks like Charles Coffin. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, the only other hymn that we have in our hymnal happens to be another Advent hymn. It's the Advent of our King 331. So of the two texts of his that made it into our hymnal, both of them were originally written in Latin, and then uh, they were uh, uh, realized to not be you know, from an earlier time, and then they were brought forward um, from hymnals from that, that time, from the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. Yeah, interesting background on, on these two hymns. We continue with the litany. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our, Our Father, Father, who art in heaven, heaven hallowed, hallowed be thy name. 
thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you have caused all scriptures, all holy scriptures, to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart that, by the patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.